Charles, we're going to jump into that passage in just a moment. Uh, Before we do, let me let us in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word and your promises are sure. Um, We pray, please speak your word into our hearts today by your spirit. Uh, Father, reveal your greatness to us today and show us this great work that you have done through your promised King, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start by thinking a little about moments of gravity. Moments of gravity. uh, Moments that are particularly weighty uh, and significant. Moments of impact. Uh, Now, that could be at a kind of... uh, societal, global level, like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, uh, or like the landing on the moon in 1969. Uh, There have also been moments of great tragedy, like 9-11, and these two are moments of gravity. Uh, They can also be much smaller, uh, personal moments, like the birth of a first child. Uh, It rearranges your world. Uh, These moments have the power to um, awaken us, uh, remind us what matters. Uh, They can ground us, they can recenter us, uh, but they can also stir us to action and empower us with a sense of purpose. These are moments of gravity. I see for many of us, uh, whether we'd call ourselves Christians or not, um, many of us kind of find ourselves often just drifting through life kind of just going through the motions. Uh, And sometimes it's only when a moment of gravity comes along that we wake up and we ask, who am I? What am I doing? Where am I going? Uh, Today, I want to show you that this passage, 2 Samuel 7, is not just a great moment of, of gravity. It is the great moment of gravity. Uh, And that's in at least a few ways. Uh, First, this was actually the great moment of gravity for David's life. Uh, At the start of the passage, we meet a man who is surrounded by splendor and power and greatness. Uh, But by the end, he is profoundly changed. Uh, At the end of this passage, David, he reflects back on everything in his life so far, you know, the victories and all the wealth. And he says, God... This was a small thing compared to the great thing that you are going to do. Uh, And that's what this passage is about. Uh, This moment changed David. Uh, But more than being uh, a moment of gravity for David's life, this passage is actually um, the center of gravity for the whole Bible. Um, Everything in the Bible is either leading up to this passage or is looking back to it. The New Testament writers um, actually go so far as to say that you can't really understand who Jesus is without understanding something about who David is, and in particular the promises in this passage. Um, it's, it's hard to overstate how important this passage is. Um, see, we here at Grace City, uh, we're committed to being deep Bible people. And that's because we believe that this word, God's word, it's more precious than gold. Um, It is sweeter than honey. Uh, And part of being a deep Bible person means uh, knowing how the Bible fits together um, and where it's going and what's what's the point of it. And I reckon if you can get your head around this passage and work out what's going on here, that will actually start to unlock the whole Bible for you um, to see how it all fits together. But more than just being a center of gravity for the whole Bible... 
Uh, My prayer today is that this passage would be like gravity for your life. To plant your feet firmly on the ground and remind you of what matters and what God is doing in this world. Um, My prayer is that God would use this passage to awaken us and to instill in us a passion for his purposes. Uh, We're going to do that by exploring this passage together. We're going to do it under two headings. Um, This passage is actually structured around a play on the word house. Uh, See, in Hebrew and in English, the word house can mean two different things. It can mean house as in a building, uh, but it can also mean house as in a dynasty, like the House of Windsor, if you're a fan of the royals. Uh, And in the first part of this passage, we're going to look at David's desire to build a house for God, a house for God, a building. But then in the second part, we're going to look at God's promise to build a house for David, a house for David, Uh, and that's a dynasty. So a house for God and a house for David. So let's jump in. We're going to look at David's desire to build a house for God. We'll pick it up from verses 1 and 2. We read, After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to the Nathan, prof- uh, Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, notice a couple of things. First, we're told that he was sitting in a palace of cedar. Um, Cedar is a very beautiful, a very fragrant and costly material. Um, It's a timber that kind of holds its scent for years after it's been cut. Uh, My guitar, I love it. Um, It's made out of cedar and it just had this beautiful smell for years after. Um, David's house is built out of cedar. Uh, And so you can imagine him sitting there in his opulent palace. Uh, But he's also a victorious and powerful king. You can see that there. Uh, The Lord had given him rest from all his enemies. Um, This is David at the peak of his reign. David has gone out, he's fought his battles, and now there are no more enemies. But that little detail should also alert us to the fact that this chapter isn't actually in chronological order with the rest of the book. It's like a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, Now, why do I say that? Um, Well, if you just look at the next uh, chapter in your Bible, you'll notice that in the next chapter, David goes out and fights all his enemies. Uh, But if that's not enough to convince us, um, we actually know from the book of 1 Kings that David's palace was only built right towards the end of his reign. And so this book, um, it does have a loosely chronological structure, but sometimes the author groups things thematically. And that should lead us to ask, like, why? Like, why would the author kind of pull something from right at the end of David's reign and put it here in chapter 7? Here's why. The author doesn't just want to make a historical point, but a theological point. The purpose isn't just to explain what happened, but what it all means. And so why does this author take us right to the very peak, the pinnacle of David's reign? Well, it's important to know that this isn't just the pinnacle of David's reign and his life. This is actually the very peak and pinnacle of Israel as a whole nation up to this point. See, Israel's history, it really begins with a man called Abraham. 
Uh, Abraham, he's an old man and he can't have kids. But God comes to Abraham and he makes him a promise that actually a great nation will come from him and he'll give them a land and they'll both be blessed and be a blessing. And so everything from that point onwards, right up to our passage, is all about God coming good on his promise to Abraham. And so at the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, we read that at long last, Abraham's descendants have become a nation and God gives them his law, they're his people. And then in Joshua and Judges, we read about how Israel started taking possession of the land. But then over the last couple of chapters in 2 Samuel, things have really started to fall into place. So David, he's finally ruling as God's chosen king. And he's captured Jerusalem. He's established that as the capital of this unified nation. Things are going well. And then in just the last chapter, he brings the ark of God into Jerusalem, the symbol of God's glory and his presence. And I want us to feel like how climactic this would have been. Like, this is it. Like, they have arrived. They're a nation. They've got the land. They've got the leader. They've got the city. And they've got the presence and the glory of God. And then... In our passage, the author takes us right to the very pinnacle of David's reign. He's sitting in his palace and there are no more enemies. And if you were reading through the Bible up to this point and you had no idea what came next, you would think, this is it. This is the summit. This is Everest. The promises of God uh, to Abraham, they've been fulfilled. It's done. But let me take you to verse 18. I want to show you something. This is what happens after David hears this word from the Lord. King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. This was a small thing. This nation, this land, this king, this city, this palace, this peace, it was a small thing in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Why would David say this? Because God is going to do a great thing. A great thing. God in this passage is going to reveal how much greater he is than David could have ever imagined. And he's going to do something greater than David has ever dreamed. And it all starts with David's plan to build a house for God. Um, you can see it, verse 2. David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So David sitting in his palace of cedar, pomp and splendor. And he starts to compare his palace to the place where the ark of God was. Uh, and we're told, verse 2, that it sat in a tent. Um, the word there actually refers to something a little bit more like a tarp than a tent. 
And this doesn't seem right to David, um, that he would sit in this palace and the Ark of God just sits in a tent. And so he's inspired to do something extravagant, something generous. Uh, He is going to build a palace for God, just like his own. Uh, What he wants to do is build a temple. Now, uh, Nathan, he's like many pastors. If some wealthy person comes to a pastor and says, I want to make a huge donation to this church so we can build something. Uh, Now, what does the pastor say? Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan, he gives David the thumbs up. Go ahead. Uh, Now, he's not speaking as a prophet, but just as an advisor. But then God is going to speak a divine word through Nathan the prophet to David. Uh, Verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one? To build me a house to dwell in? Now, it's a rhetorical question to David. The implied answer is no. David is not the one to build a house for God. But why? Like, why is David not the one? It's because he dramatically underestimates the greatness of God. And he underestimates the greatness of God in two ways. First, he fails to acknowledge that God does not dwell in a house. See, in the ancient world, it was thought that the various different gods, they dwelt in temples or at holy places. And that's where the God was. That's where it lived. But the God of the Bible is not like other gods. Uh, He does not live in a house or a temple. Uh, You can see that verses 6 and 7. God says, I have not dwelt in a house... From the, day I brought up, uh, from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day, I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, God doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells with his people. Uh, That was the whole point of that tent called the tabernacle. It symbolized the presence of God with the people. Uh, And we actually see David's son Solomon correct his father's misunderstanding. So David's son Solomon, he actually does build a temple for uh, God. And at the dedication of the temple, temple's done, Solomon stands up and this is what he says. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. What's the point? God cannot be contained by a building, much less anything else in this world. And I think there's an important lesson here for us. See, a temple is ultimately a way of controlling God. Because uh, you can come into his temple and you can do business with God and then you can leave. And he stays there until you come back. Uh, It's a method of control. Uh, I wonder if there's maybe something unhelpful about our language of uh, the house of the Lord to describe church. Um, God does not live in this building. Um, This building is simply a way to keep the rain out. And sometimes it only does that half well. Uh, 
you know, this, this is our home, but it's a roof, it's four walls. God does not live in this building. He dwells with his people. He doesn't live in a holy place. He lives with a holy people. And this only becomes truer and more wonderful in the New Testament. We'll see that later. So God, he reveals his greatness to David by reminding him, I don't dwell in a house. I don't live in a building. But David makes a second mistake uh, because he also underestimates God's greatness by thinking that he could do something for God as if he was doing God a favour. This comes out in verses 8 and 9. Speaking to Nathan, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Notice what God is saying. I am the one who took you. I appointed you ruler, and I have cut off all your enemies. He's saying, David, I have done everything for you. Everything you have has come from my hand. See, David has misunderstood the direction of blessing. When it comes to God, blessing only ever flows in one direction. From God to us. This was absolutely radical in the ancient world. See, in the ancient world, um, the kings and the gods, they were thought to have a bit of a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of a relationship. And so the kings, they would build a temple for the god, a monument. And then the priests of the god would come and pronounce a blessing over this king. Um, Have a look at what the priests of the god Amun-Re say to the Egyptian pharaoh Tutmos III. Tutmos III. Since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monuments, now I will establish your throne unto distant days. Does that sound familiar? Could it be that David has made the same mistake as Tutmos III in thinking that he could do God a favor and somehow earn God's blessing? Uh, But that is not the God of the Bible. With him... Blessing only ever flows in one direction. And there's another important lesson for us here. See, right at the bottom of it, Christianity is not about what you can do for God. It is about what God has done for you. This is what we call grace. Grace. See, think about it. Why would God choose Abraham, an old man unable to have children? So that when his descendants became a great nation, we would know that it was God who did it. To demonstrate his power and his grace. And why would God choose the Israelites, who were by all counts weak and insignificant? So that when they became the chosen people of God, we would know that it was only because of his power and his grace. And why would God give them conditional promises in the law? So that when they failed, we would know that God's faithfulness to them was only ever because of his power and his grace. And why would God choose David, an irrelevant shepherd boy? So that when he became Israel's greatest king, 
we would know that it was because of God's power and God's grace. And if we ever give to God and serve God, which we do, we do it knowing that we're only ever giving him what he already gave us. And all of this, this hits David like a freight train. He prays, who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me thus far? Or verse 22, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. This is the first part of the moment that changed David's life. God reveals and reminds him of how utterly majestic he is. Like he is far greater than anything we could even fathom. Um, He is utterly unlike any of the gods that we could ever dream up. He does not dwell in a house and he can never be done a favour. But God doesn't just reveal his greatness to David... He also promises to do a great thing, something far greater than anything that has come before it. And this brings us to the second house in the passage, the house that God will build for David. Have a look, verses 11 and 12. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, notice the language of house there. Uh, But this time it isn't a building. It's a dynasty. And the promise is that God will take one of David's descendants and establish his kingdom forever. Um, If you've got your Bible there, you'll notice that language of forever down in verse 16. Um, This is an eternal kingdom. Uh, This king will reign forever. But what will this king actually do? I mean, it's all well and good to have a king. But why would God establish this king? What is God going to do through this king? What's this promise all about? Abraham. It is all about Abraham and God's promises to him. Uh, And the reason I say that is because there are a few details in this passage, which if we're paying attention, are going to point us back to Abraham. Let me show you some of those. Uh, That phrase, offspring of your own flesh and blood, that phrase only ever appears one other time in the Bible. And that place is Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, The other thing is that in David's prayer, he actually addresses God with an unusual name. That name doesn't appear anywhere else in 1 and 2 Samuel. But that name is the same name that Abraham used to pray to God after they made this covenant. So, if you've got your Bible, keep your finger in 2 Samuel 7. But come back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Let me remind you of the promises that God made to Abraham. Uh, There are three things. Genesis 12 uh, from verse 2. First, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Two, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And three, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
Uh, three promises, nation, name, and blessing. Nation, name, and blessing. Now come back with me to 2 Samuel 7, because I think we're going to see these th- same three things. Uh, you'll see it in verse 9. God promises three things to David. This is them. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Three things, name, nation, blessing. The same three things that God promised to Abraham. But if you're wondering why it says rest instead of blessing there at the end, I think there's a good reason. Remember back to verse 1 of this passage, David was resting from all his enemies. And so like, why would God promise to give him rest for all, from all his enemies while he was resting from all his enemies? Like, What's going on? I wonder if it is to gently but firmly remind David that peace from enemies like Philistines was a small thing and that he was about to do a great thing. That there are enemies more ferocious than the Philistines and that through this promised king he would deliver a rest that can't be won with swords and shields. Can you see what's going on here? All the promises of Abraham, they're being focused in on this promised son of David. He will be the one to fulfill all these promises. He will be given a name that is above every name. He will be the true Israel. And he will be the one to bring a greater rest and a greater blessing for all the nations. His kingdom will endure forever. And the reason he can do all this, the key to it all, is that this king, he won't just be a son of Abraham and a son of David He's going to be the son of God. Have a look at verse 14. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. The reason this king will succeed where others have failed is because of his relationship to God. He'll be the son of God and God's love will never be taken from him. But that verse also raises a bit of a problem for us. Did you notice it? You're probably expecting me to tell you that this king is Jesus. That's true. We're going to get there. But before we do, like if Jesus is this promised king, then why does it seem to say that he's going to do wrong? Um, Did you notice that? Um, It's kind of how it sounds when it says, when he does wrong. And if that's the case, then that's a bit of a problem. Uh, because the one thing that we all know about Jesus is that he never did wrong. What's going on? Uh, part of the issue is that our English translations aren't really helping us out here. Um, I don't really like doing the Hebrew thing. I think, I think it's helpful here. Um, that phrase, uh, oh, sorry, that phrase, when he does wrong, that kind of makes it sound like it's inevitable. 
as if it's saying, when the time comes that he does wrong. Uh, But the Hebrew phrase there is actually saying something slightly different. Uh, It actually says something closer to, should he do wrong, I will punish him, but my love will never be taken from him. Or um, even if he should sin, my love will never be taken from him, though I will punish him. Um, The whole point is not that this king will inevitably do wrong, but that regardless of whether he does right or wrong, God will never take his love from him. And that's true for Jesus. But the whole point of this verse is that regardless of whether David's descendants do right or wrong, he will remain faithful to his promises. Uh, But I think this is also a little reminder not to jump too quickly to Jesus. Like we love jumping to Jesus. That's because we love Jesus. Um, But you see, David did have a son. His name was Solomon. We talked about him before. And what we find in the book of 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, is Solomon did in fact end up building a temple for God. But at the same time, we also discover that Solomon did wrong. He did wrong. We're told that he went after other gods. We're told he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so we're left waiting and wondering, was Solomon this promised king? Or is there another one to come? Um, As it happens, after Solomon, the nation actually divides. It kind of dissolves a bit. Uh, And from that point onwards, Israel will never again be unified as a nation with one king. That's it. Now, uh, David's tribe, Judah, they do have a Davidic king for a couple of hundred years. But then they're defeated. They're deported. Babylonians. And from that point onwards, Judah will never again have a Davidic king on the throne. And so Israel starts wondering, is God going to come good on his promise? Because the people, for, for a while, they're in exile and they have no king. But now scroll forward to the first century. The Jews still don't have a king. They're occupied by Rome. They've got a puppet king. But they're still longing. There's this expectation that this Davidic king would come and establish God's kingdom. And the reason this expectation never died is because God kept speaking by his prophets and saying, I'm going to come good. I'm going to come good. So, come with me to the very first page of the New Testament. So grab your Bible. Come with me to the very first page of the New Testament. It's Matthew chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to find it. Um, When you get there, just have a look. What do you notice? The New Testament starts with a long list of names. It's a genealogy. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament starts with a long list of names? Like, surely you'd want like a thrilling story to hook us in. Um, You know, like Matthew, he could learn something from the James Bond franchise. Always start with a thrilling action sequence. Um, Like, why in the providence of God does our New Testament start with a list of names? Here's why. Let me read you the very first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can you see how it's impossible to understand Jesus rightly without first understanding something of God's promises to David and to Abraham? And who is Jesus? 
He is the promised Davidic king who will usher in the eternal kingdom of God. And in so doing, fulfill all of God's promises that stretch all the way back to Abraham. And the reason he can do it is because he's not only the son of David and the son of Abraham, he is the son of God. Have a look at what the angel says to Mary in Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. But what exactly does Jesus do? How does he build this kingdom? How does he fulfill all these promises to Abraham? He builds a house. He builds a house. See, how many houses are there in 2 Samuel 7? Three. There's three. See, there's the house that David wanted to build for God. That's a physical building. But then there's the house that God promises to build for David, a dynasty. But then there's a third, the house that this king will build. Have a look at verse 13. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, at one level, it's true, Solomon, he built a temple for God, but we saw Solomon, he failed. That temple, it was destroyed. So what kind of house does Jesus build? What is the house that he is building? You. You are, we are, we are the house that he has built. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 6. The Apostle Paul says this, We are the temple of the living God. God dwells with us. But have a look at what Paul said. Uh, he quotes a verse, two verses later, to make his point. Have a look at the verse he quotes. See if it sounds familiar. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's 2 Samuel 7.14. But Paul actually tweaks it slightly and he does that to show us that 2 Samuel 7, it's not just about Jesus. It's about us. It's about you if your trust is in Jesus. This is the great thing that God is doing in this world. God is calling people out of the darkness of sin and adopting them as his own children, his sons and daughters, so that he might dwell in them and dwell with them both now and into eternity. That is how he builds his kingdom. That is how he fulfills this promise to Abraham. This is the great thing. And he does it all through Jesus. Have a look at verse 14 again. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Grace City, Jesus never did wrong. And yet he was punished with a rod wielded by men. 
and with floggings inflicted by human hands. Why? For your wrongdoing. So that you might be clean and holy, that God might dwell in you and dwell with you as your Father. And so if you haven't done it yet, why not bow the knee to Jesus? Submit yourself to his kingship. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in him. And know that there is nothing you could ever do to earn his love. Because when it comes to God, blessing only ever flows in one direction. Let me close by leading us in a prayer. That's just a prayer kind of inspired by David's prayer. Let me lead us. Sovereign Lord, who are we that you would save us? And what more can we say to you? For your word is sure and you have done a great thing. There is no one like you, God, and yet you dwell with us. You have established us as your dwelling place and you have established your son Jesus as your eternal king. You have promised to bless all nations in him. And so we boldly pray, do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Amen.